Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Neuroresiliency. In this episode, we are talking about how to master language learning. Now, this is not something that I do very often, but I dive deep into my past about languages and its connection with what I'm doing currently with coaching people. It sounds weird. They are incredibly connected. So why, why, why is there a need to put out this idea of how to master language learning? Well, there's a grave problem with language education nowadays, an incredible problem with it, and it's based on incentives. You know, there are conflicting uh, opinions about how to learn languages, what is the best way to learn languages. You just need to go on YouTube and you'll find 15 different approaches, right? If you want to go and learn a language at a college, university, a private language school, you'll find a completely different, different approach as well. So well, which one is right or what are we doing? It all starts with me. Back in 2005, I got qualified to teach languages. I started teaching what was called the audiolingual method, which is just making people repeat sentences that, that they had translated already in their book and you corrected their pronunciation. Okay. The problem with this was that it treated people like robots, like parrots, because that's all that they had to do is there was no confirmation of understanding, just parrot fashion speaking. Okay. Well, that doesn't allow us to profoundly dive into any particular piece and explore it. And the more that you learn about the brain, you know that curiosity actually is one of those things that's the drivers of good learning, creating very strong memories, is the more you learn about something, the deeper you can go into it and understand its complexities, the more it actually embeds in you, because that exploration is in itself a journey. So just by telling people, oh, this word means this, great, wonderful. <laughs> How am I supposed to remember that? Well, actually, if you say, well, this word means this, and that's why it's got a relationship to these other words as well, or you know, like the word bake, to bake, and then we've got baker and bakery, and then people start seeing connection and baked goods, and all of a sudden, they're like, oh, okay. And then you say, well, to bake something else, it doesn't have to have the same types of food, but the style of cooking. And then you know they remember a lot more. So Again, the idea is that what is uh, what is the audiolingual method? Well, it's this very basic method treating people like robots. And then I got qualified to teach things like grammar and great, wonderful. And I traveled around the world teaching that. And I accumulated more certifications and diplomas and things like that. And then eventually I got my master's degree. And I was working in the best school um, without an argument, without a doubt, the best school in the UK, according to all the regulators and inspectors and governing bodies that you know give you standards it was the number one school and i worked there for many 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 years and i became a senior teacher a teacher trainer uh, i became you know an advocate where i was flown out to different countries to go and do presentations and demo classes and things like that so you know my experience is pretty pretty deep in that world and I started to see the incentives. And this is what you need to ask yourself as well. If someone is telling you this is the way to do it, what are they incentivized to say? So there's a YouTuber who claims that reading is the way to learn. Great. Fantastic. What is this YouTuber selling? Oh, they're selling books. Surprise, surprise. That's not to say that reading is bad for learning, but to say that reading is the only way to learn, mm, we're missing some parts there, buddy. Okay. Reading is a great way to learn. And perhaps it's a great way for some personalities to learn where they feel very comfortable with it. But again, learning a language is beyond that. It's more than that. 
So every time that you see a YouTuber, even if they're not selling anything, they're going to be talking about, this is my way to learn a language because it's validated. You know, For you to agree with me means that all of a sudden my comp- contribution is valid. So I have nothing to sell you here when it comes to language learning. I don't teach people how to learn languages anymore. There are one or two people I maybe do favors for. Um, I've gotten some great results for clients in the past where it's like zero to, uh, I believe it was uh, upper intermediate, but it's a bit of a joke test, you know, in, in Japanese in a couple of months. Um, I think his real level is probably like an intermediate conversational Japanese. Um, and that was, that was a great result because he really did everything that I told him to do. You know, we really took it to heart. Whereas, you know, most people try and be smarter than you and like, okay, that's fine. Do you do what you, what you like, but let's get you a result still of what you're doing. So I don't have anything to sell you, but what I'm going to say to you will make a lot of sense. And it's also backed up by a lot of the research. The number one thing that I was finding my school and and the industry that I was in was doing was putting people in in chairs in classrooms because they were incentivized to do so. They were not incentivized to help this person really accelerate through a language. They were incentivized to sell them books and put bums on seats. And that's it. Language learning industry is a business first, right? The job of a good teacher is to make themselves redundant. The job of a good business school, let's say principal, is to make sure you got repeat customers again and again and again and again and again. And so they were focused more on building an experience for the customer than they were on actually helping them improve their language. To to the point where I actually, I, I still remember one of my final classes that I taught, I almost got fired for doing a great job because I blurred the lines with how to teach writing. And I taught a method of writing that was actually better. It was a deconstructive method where uh, they went into it, they deconstructed, so they didn't need to constantly just practice writing and getting it wrong and getting told what they're doing wrong. No, they deconstructed really good texts and then they were planning um, for most of their writing time and the actual writing time was very fast. It was very quick. And that's very unconventional for those kinds of things. The result is that, you know, these students pretty much like out of, I think, 12, seven of them got distinctions. And then the remaining five still got great marks. You know, I think one person who was like the, the weakest student still got like a great grade. So, you know, well, that was almost, I was almost fired over that. And that was a, a huge eye opener in terms of, um, in terms of people's incentives. So let's go back to this. How does the brain actually learn? And this is where I've taken a lot of my, my, my business is in putting the brain together in the correct way. I found business and gaps and helping people because my approach to language was actually based on the social brain hypothesis. And it's less of a hypothesis and more of like, well, there's a lot of facts to actually support this hypothesis now, but always remain open to change. But, you know, it's hard to say that there's e- even a close competitor. There's, there's nothing that's near a competitor for the social brain hypothesis. Your brain is wired to manage social relationships. Great. What does that mean for language learning? Well, before I get there, there's another thing. Your brain is also wired for three-dimensional space perception. Okay? So what do we do with this? Well, how about social uh, social syllabuses, 
learning first how to greet someone, learning then how to say, hello, how are you? You know, greeting someone that you've met already. And so social situations is the way that I manage beginners. Or if I myself am learning a language to travel to a country, I will learn those those social situations first. The first one is the meet and greet. And when I've done this with clients, one weekend of the meet and greet phrases, there's about a hundred phrases in the initial kind of meet and greet kind of thing. And learning that hundred phrases, all of a sudden people go with confidence after, you know, a weekend um, of learning and then, you know, some practice, all of a sudden they're going to these, these places and they're speaking the language and they feel so confident and they're like, holy cow, I used every single phrase that you taught me. I'm like, well, yeah. But if you studied in a normal school, you'd probably be learning colors and days of the week and things that aren't immediately socially viable uh, things to learn. So once again, the approach is different and the approach will inform what we're learning as well as how we're learning it. So you don't learn a word in isolation because no one just walks around saying yellow. You know, someone would say, oh, can I have the red one? something like that, the, the word that you're trying to learn, like red, would be in a sentence. And that sentence would have a social function, right? So in that way, we can start to learn colors, like maybe connected with shopping situations, and all of a sudden it becomes much more viable. Um, as well as then location, like 3D space. So when you are in the situations, you can imagine where the person is in front of you and what kind of back and forth you're going to have. So in the beginning, learning dialogues is probably one of the most rewarding things that you can do when you are studying a language. Learn the dialogues and never, never, ever learn a word alone. And so this is now the second point that I bring to the table, which is the working memory. Now, working memory is one of the models of how our uh, brain manages information and data. And the model works like this. You've got, uh, I want you to imagine an octopus in your brain. And this octopus has got, you know, its eight limbs. And if you give it a piece that it doesn't know, it needs to take its time with that piece to feel every part of that piece to become more comfortable with that piece. Once it's comfortable with that piece, one leg can hold more than one piece, right? So in the beginning, I can manage eight pieces because each leg needs one piece each to feel it out. But over time, let's say that one leg can actually take on two pieces and then the other seven legs take on one piece each. But now we've all of a sudden, we've just grouped two pieces together. And that means that we can add an additional piece, whatever that means. So let me give you a practical example. If you're learning French and you're like, okay, cool. How do I say, how are you? Okay, so you learn, comment ça va? Comment it's two sounds, ça va, okay? It's another two sounds. So we've occupied four legs of your working memory. Great. But then over time with repetition, our brain is actually incentivized to automate this, to group it together. So the more comfort we have with it, the more our brain will start to pair these and chunk them and group them up. And so then our brain will only need one leg to manage the entire phrase. Como se va? Como se va? So... As we get more automated with working memory, we become stronger and more confident in the language. And that automation comes with repetition. It comes with exploration. So I highly recommend that people do two things, which is to deconstruct whatever phrase they're trying to learn, like break it down into small pieces, see where else it's used. How, does, how do we write it? How do we speak it? You know, How do other people speak it? 
What are some typical traits? How do we speak it all together? How do we speak it separately? Um, what is the meaning of this in other contexts? You know, have I seen this before? What can I link it to? And that type of deconstruction, regardless of how far you go down that deconstruction, it's always going to work better for you because you're we're creating more tags to existing memories, right? And then a reconstruction, which is your working memory is kind of like a whiteboard when it's called the visual sketchpad, it's a whiteboard. So if I say, como sa va, I've just written it on the whiteboard. And with time or more demand on my working memory, I will erase that phrase. And my little octopus leg of the working memory has to go into the closet of my long-term memory and pull out that phrase. And the more regularly you do that, basically the more automated and the stronger your memory becomes. So by giving yourself periods of rest in between learning you're able to actually automate the phrases a little bit better. Okay. So I know that we're going quite like detailed into the brain and how the brain works. So let's just go through the top points again. Number one, you have a social brain. So learn social, socially useful situational phrases or dialogues, right? Number two, your brain has a location bias, which means visualize yourself. Imagine yourself in that dialogue, having that dialogue, and you'll probably be able to predict the other person's uh, expressions, how they would respond, etc., or what kind of phrases you might need. So, you know, coffee shop conversations, you know, one of the phrases that um, I didn't expect early on, but as soon as I heard it, I was like, what the hell is that? And when the person demonstrated it, I was like, oh, okay, was... It was uh, que tamaño quieres in Spanish, which is which size do you want? And I was just like, I just want a coffee. And this person was like, que tamaño? And I was like, I, what? And then she held up a cup, a different size, and said, que tamaño? And I was like, oh, okay, all right, that one, or whatever. So it was actually easier to navigate, but it created stress by not knowing. So how do you get around this? Not by learning every word, but by learning to read social situations as well. Okay, and that's why it's good to visualize the location of the 3D space and what could come up and then practice it. And then the automating of these phrases as well. How do we actually put them in our brain? How do we automate them? So I've got like 20 different exercises. I don't know, depending on how much people are interested in this kind of stuff, I could run a workshop for it. You know, it could be very interesting. I could just do, you know, a little course, something like that to share with people. Um, I'm very happy to do this. I love languages. I've spent 15 years of my life and a master's degree dedicated to it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's my jammy jam. So automating it is based on working memory. Now, here we go. This is This is probably what you've been waiting for. If you don't know how to study a language, here's what I'm going to give you. Every single week, you should be doing a listening, a reading, a speaking, a writing, a translation, and collecting phrases. I'll say that again. There's six things here. A listening, a reading, a speaking, a writing. That's easy. Listen, read, speak, write. Okay. A translation and then collection. So what is the point of each of these is to actually activate as much of the brain as possible, right? So listenings. Why are you listening? Well, you're listening and you're able to interpret Right, So listening is kind of translation as well. Your brain will automatically try and make sense of the words that you're listening to, but there's a time-sensitive issue. So your brain is actually learning to translate at the speed the language is spoken. And that's a very good muscle, right? number one. But number two is you start predicting meaning from context because they'll say a word that you don't know, but you can't pause um, someone speaking. You have to kind of roll with it and allow that to be let go. 
So there are multiple exercises that I can recommend for listening, but just the fact that you're doing a listening once a week at least is a good thing. And my my opinion with all of these is to repeat the same thing. So if you can only do like five minutes uh, for a week, then choose it like, let's say a one and a half minute clip and do it three times or a one minute clip and repeat it five times. So by the end of the fifth repetition, you're really confident and comfortable with everything that they've said. You've explored it enough times, you know, you've been through it and you know where they're going to change pronunciation or what the grammar construction is, whatever it is. Okay. So reading is really, really useful as well. Well, what's the point of doing a reading in a language? The point is to be able to isolate constructions. How does this language put together all of its ideas? So just to say something like, uh, the tomato is red, you know, that translates into most Latin languages. But when you say, I have a red tomato, it's actually very different because some Latin languages would say, I have a tomato red. And you need to get used to those types of constructions so that you can automate them as well. Right. So reading allows us to see how do people regularly use this language without the added stress of, can I keep up with this person? Do I have time? So reading and writing, speaking and listening, speaking and listening have a time component that you have a limited amount of time. So there's a stress to it and learning to manage that stress well is important. That's why we do the exercise. But reading and writing, there is no time and you can go back, you can change it, you can check it again. You can't really do that with speaking and listening, okay? So with speaking, of course, it's a learning how to manage and to say things that you want to say. So I highly, highly, highly recommend you get onto websites like italki and preply um, because the concept there is that these websites will allow you to connect with someone in a language, right, for no money whatsoever, like five bucks an hour or something like that, where you can just ask them a ton of questions, try and practice your phrases. They'll give you some corrections. They'll give you some alternatives, you know, things like that. It's very, very useful. And it helps you to get over your fear of speaking too, because the biggest thing that builds up is this idea that I don't want to speak. 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 You know, I'm very embarrassed about my language or whatever. Well, you're getting over that in week one, by just speaking to someone who speaks the other language and you're just practicing and, and again, it's like training the language versus actually performing the language. So you're training it. And then when you have to go outside, travel to the language, to the country and speak the language, that's going to be the performance aspect where you're not expecting people to treat you like a student. Now I said translating, and this is usually confusing for most people. They're like, well, we don't want to translate. It's true. You don't want to translate, but the social situations you know, think about what you say in your language on a regular basis and how do you translate that phrase or that expression or that emotion that you're trying to communicate? How would you translate that into the target language? So attempt a translation and then get on a call with someone who speaks the language and ask them, how would you translate this? This is the situation. This is the social environment that I would use this in. And then they would come up with the, the correct translation. Translation, not word by word, but social situation translation. So that's always a big one. How do you translate the social function, not the words? Because some of these things don't exist in other languages. Or some of the words that you want to use, here's a good example. French uses the word faire, which actually translates to either make or do in English. 
So well, which one is it? Is it make or do? Because in English, make and do have very specific functions that are not connected to each other. So instead of translating the words, you just ask what is normal in your language in these situations. And that will help you to translate a lot more. And then, of course, the last one is collecting phrases. You know, push yourself to collect phrases that you're going to try and utilize and push yourself to the edges of your, your linguistic ability. Don't just kind of rest on your laurels and say, oh, I've got enough. I'm just going to sit here now. No, like try and learn a new phrase and try and play with that phrase, even at the higher up levels. It's phenomenal how many times I was teaching proficiency students who were just so bad at learning, but they had just stuck at it and thrown enough crap against the wall that some of it was sticking. And it blew my mind that they were still using dictionaries at that level. And I'm like, you, you know, that muscle of prediction from context should be so strong at this level that you don't need dictionaries. Yes, a dictionary translation is a good confirmation that you understand it correctly, but the translations don't always sit very well, especially for those specific words that are so high level. It doesn't work. It's really very difficult to translate these types of things. It's a lot easier just to say, how do you use it in this language? What situations are common? What kind of sentences is it common to find it in? So that's how I would impress upon you to think about languages, social groups of words, social functions, you know, in which situations, and some suggestions on some exercises that you could go through, you know, listening five minutes a week, reading five minutes a week, speaking, cool, half an hour, it's going to be like $5. I would do listening like, let's say twice a month, once every two weeks or something like that. Writing, you could do that once a week. Translating as well, once a week, you know, once every two weeks. Collecting phrases, you can do that on a weekly basis as well, just three phrases a week, and you're already making progress. All right. Don't, please, 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 please don't trust apps to take control and responsibility for your learning. But again, this is all in service of the social brain. And you will find a lot of success with following socially informed decisions. So I hope that this helps you. I hope that you find something good about this. Let me know what you think. You know, reply to me. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Podcasts, you can find a link to the Substack below. And the Substack is where you get email notifications of not just these podcasts, but anything else that I release. And those emails, you can respond to me one-to-one. I would love to hear from you. You can tell me what you thought of the episode. Or um, the Substack also has the function to allow you to comment underneath it. So publicly, people can then comment and people can reply to each other's comments and I can reply as well. So I love that type of interaction. So please feel free to subscribe to the Substack below. Um, please leave a rating for this on Spotify or iTunes or you know Google Podcasts. And also, more importantly, Share it with a friend that you think would be interested in this to start a discussion. Maybe have a back and forth about it. That would be amazing because social connections are the best connections, aren't they? All right, everyone. I hope you have a wonderful day and we'll see you in the next one. Ciao for now.